podcast this week, we count down to Christmas with another couple of sensational guest-shaped packages under the tree. Hmm, what is this? It's shaped like Bradley Cooper and Kerry Mulligan. Could it be? Yes, they're the Bernsteins. The stars of Maestro and, of course, in Bradley Cooper's case, the director, producer, writer, and pretty much everything else as well. Plus, don't tell him your name, Pike. What's that under the tree? It's Rosamund Pike, star of Saltburn. How exciting. All that, plus the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that is trying very, very hard to get in the Christmassy spirit, but it went to a cinema in Northern Ireland today and saw a quite horrifying road safety information video. Blood and limbs flying liberally. It was more terrifying than what I had paid to see, which was Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. This was Bad Driver and the Lost Arm. Honestly. Oh, no. Anyway, hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. It is the 21st of December as we're recording this. It is just four days until Christmas, four days until Santa brings us all lovely, lovely presents. And that means that we are all scattered to the four corners of the earth. Uh, Well, ish. At the moment, I am in Northern Ireland. But nevertheless, I am joined by my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Geek Queen Helen O'Hara, where in the world are you? Hello, I am in the Midlands. Um, and I'm up with my small niece and nephew, and they are uh, experiencing the special hell of a three-year-old and a five-year-old in a room with presents that they know are for them, but they are not yet allowed to open. Spare a thought for these poor, <laughs> poor children who have been driven absolutely mad with this knowledge, this forbidden knowledge, all day. Are any of them shaped like Carrie Mulligan and Bradley Cooper? They're not, but you know, they are real chameleons. So I believe in their ability to hide in a box that looks like it's just a Toy Story game. That'd be wild. You think a chameleon could really make it in Hollywood, right? Because they can blend in, disappear with any luck. They got the grail already. Speaking of people who've got the grail already, uh, broadcasting from his home in location redacted, it is... James Dyer. James, have you got the grill already? Uh, I'm actually broadcasting from the lost city of Necros, where I've been entombed for a thousand years. So that's uh, that's nice. (laughs) That explains a lot. Mm. It does explain a lot. Are we all suitably in the Christmas spirit? Yeah, I've been eating nothing but mince pies all day. That's a lie, actually. I've been eating brown butter, brown sugar shortbread that I made yesterday, which is pretty great. Brown butter, brown sugar shortbread. Mm. That's a new tongue twister. Brown butter, brown sugar shortbread. Yeah, you did it. You've nailed it. I did, uh, but yeah. uh, can I nail it if I do it really, really quickly? Jimbo, are you in the Christmas spirit? Um, am I in the Christmas spirit? I did take a Christmas jumper into the office today. It was a Christmas knitted white singlet, which was sent to me for Die Hard. So it's a Die Hard Christmas jumper, and it is just John McClane's white vest, but knitted. <laughs> yep. Doesn't have terrorist blood on it. Doesn't have vent like grime on it yet. You know, obviously there's time. Twelve days of Christmas to go. So, you know, what the hell? Yeah, that's the thing. What the? How come? How come you got this and I didn't get this? Hard to say. But I've left it in the in the cupboard in the office. So maybe when we do our live six hundredth episode, we shall give it away as a spot prize, including one of the Am- uh, one of the Aquaman plushies that I stole from the Aquaman screening last night. I'll start that in the cupboard as well. So that might be winging its way towards King's Place in January. Okay, all right. Good, good segue. Uh, speaking of King's Place and speaking of January and speaking of episode 600, uh, I'm delighted to say that we are sold out. Episode 600 is sold out a month before 
it takes place, I should probably start booking some guests. <laughs> Have I booked you guys? Do you guys know about this I don't this know. Thing? I'm probably busy, to be yeah. honest with you. I'll try my best. I'll I see what comes up. I would absolutely give it a swerve, to be honest. <laughs> it's probably going to be terrible. But I should also say that, as is tradition, once we sell out a live show, then we put streaming passes on sale. So King's Place have done that. Streaming passes are now available for anyone who can't make it uh, due to their geographical situation or just sheer laziness, or maybe they don't want to. Uh, but they can go to kingsplace.co.uk to check out streaming passes for that, where you get to watch the show from the comfort of your living room. And you get to watch it in the order that it is recorded and not the order that it will go out in as a podcast. Once I put all the guests in their proper place, uh, so to speak, and once I've cut out all the libel. So you get to see all the libel for free. So if you're a libel lawyer, this oh, could no. be a very lucrative £12.50. Just spend £12.50 and you could make millions from suing us whenever we say something unspeakable about redacted. Oh, God. This yes. is a very bad This is a very bad sales pitch. I have worries. I have concerns. Yeah. Um, um, what if I'm What if I'm shorting? I'm shorting the Empire podcast. What if I'm, I'm betting against the Empire podcast? Hmm. Does that make sense? It's barely a bet. It's practically a guarantee. Uh, it's going to be very, very exciting. I am, I am jazzed. I am thrilled. I am even, I am, I, I, am I fajazzled? I don't know. I don't know. I hope not. I, I don't know if I am. I don't want to know either way. I probably shouldn't be. Uh, anyway, should we have a question? Please. It's Christmas. It is a time for miracles. So be of good cheer and bring me some questions from the listeners uh, who have sent me some lovely, lovely things. Okay, I haven't seen these because I asked for these when I was uh, driving home from Belfast. Kay McDonald says, uh, best decade for Christmas films. Ooh. Oof. I mean, 2003 alone had four great ones. What did it have in 2003? Um, of course, we are talking to Helen O'Hara here, who is the host of Mba Humbug, the official Christmas podcast. She has partnered with Santa Claus uh, to That's talk right. about Christmas movies. So you know, there's, there's nothing you do not know about Christmas movies. Oh, there's a lot. Spells. There's a lot, yes. but um, but I, you know, I do know that 2003 brought us Love Actually, Bad Santa, Elf, and Tokyo Godfathers. Um, mm -hmm. so that's pretty good. Tokyo Godfathers, not quite as well known as the others, but probably as well reviewed and a lot better reviewed than Love Actually. Let's be honest. Sorry, James. Mm. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I would say that year alone has ma makes the 2000s pretty formidable. You guys are going to say the 80s though, because I feel like that is the era. When Die Hard is set, that's the era of Muppets Christmas Carol, isn't it? Or is but that 90? None of the others are 88. We need to be specific to 88, wouldn't we? No, no, it's decade. Oh, it's decade. It was, the question was decade. Decade, yeah, well, yeah, that yeah. make it easier, certainly. Mm. Yes, decade. Uh, yeah, I'm going to, I don't know, 80s? Uh, well, it's a wonderful... Die Hard, Gremlins. Die Hard and Die Gremlins hard. in the 80s. Yeah, Home Alone and... Um, and the Miracle on 34th Street remake in the 90s and Muppet Christmas Carol. Mm. Yes. That's uh, pretty Muppet formidable. Muppet Christmas Carol is very, very strong. It's obviously disqualified immediately for having two Home Alone movies in the same decade and probably more and probably they squeezed out Home Alone 3 in the 90s as well, didn't they? I'm sure they did. With a Culkin. There was another Culkin, like a minor Culkin <laughs> knocking around. Like a Jeffrey. Jeffrey Culkin. Jeffrey Culkin. Wow. But yeah, somehow better than the original. Weird. Is anyway. My, okay. my, my crusade against Home Alone will never stop. Uh, let me see. All right. So we've definitively answered that one. <laughs> uh, okay. We've definitively answered that sure, one, Helen. Yes, sure. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Geek Bub Quiz asks, what's your favorite needle drop song in a movie set at Christmas time? Do you know there was a really good one this year? 
this is a very minor spoiler for Genie, but the the end credits of Genie, the needle drop is um, I wish I was a little bit taller. You know that song? It is, yes. isn't it? Yes. And I thought that was very clever. It's not a Christmas needle drop, but I thought that was all the better for it. Now, needle drop denotes when a song plays in a movie and it's meant to be really, really cool. Or are we now just taking the phrase needle drop to mean any time any song is played at any point in a movie? Uh, why does it have to be? I don't know. Isn't it just that when a song drops and you're like, ha ha, that's cool. But that's yeah. what happened when that song plays over the credits. I was like, ha ha, that's cool. Oh, that's cool. But, uh, you know, are we asking here about, are we, are we talking here about, you know, just classic Christmas songs in movies. So have yourself a merry little Christmas and meet me in St. Oh, Louis. Oh. Or is it St. Louis? I can never remember. St. Louis, I believe. But yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful moment, but it's not a needle drop, is no, that's it? Not, well, no, it's somebody singing that in the film. So it's not a needle drop because it's like, it's native to the film. Yeah. Surely a needle drop has to be music that is played in the, like played onto the film rather than played in the film. Yeah. I think diegetic music does not count. Yeah. Yeah. What about what about Die Hard Ejetic? Yeah, that's fine. Ode to Joy is a banging needle drop. I'm there for that. That is a good need. That's a good answer. Let's just go yeah. with that. Beethoven for the win. I don't know. I have a really soft spot in my heart for uh, Christmas Please Come Home by Darlene Love, which kicks off Gremlins. Um, it, you know, the, the credit sequence of Gremlins uh, plays to that song. It's an absolute belter. Mm. Um, that's a good one. And I uh, and I saw Darlene Love with my wife a couple of years ago in New York at Christmas time. And she played oh. both that, she performed both that and Marshmallow World. So there you go. Two absolute stormers. Uh, all right. Bar Steward Graz asks, if Santa could make you any film box set you wanted, what would it be? I mean, like apart from the ones that exist. What, what like he, he'd go to HMV and get it for us. Is that what we're saying? Or he's making something that doesn't exist. Because if I could have the latter, I would ask him to go forward in time and get me the 4K James Cameron box set, which is coming out in March, and give it to me in time for like watch it over Christmas. That would be nice. I would appreciate <laughs> that muchly. If you can go forward in time, James, surely you would want Denny Villeneuve's Dune trilogy. That is true. The Dune trilogy 8K. box set, 100%, because there's been some Dune Messiah talk, which I'm sure we'll uh, get onto later. Uh, but yeah. uh, yes, I would, I would, of course, like that more, on account of having not seen two of those films. All right. Okay. Uh, let's say, for example, this this has to stick to films that are uh, that exist. Okay. All right. So we can't just make up films <laughs> or have anyone time travel, even though you know Santa is here and Santa, just by hit the, the sheer virtue of what he does every night, is a time traveler, isn't he? He has to control time in order to do what he does. Uh, so Hell's Bells, I can see you thinking. Yeah. What? Mm. What, what would you like? I I like I I feel like I'm quite well served for box sets. Like I'm genuinely struggling here. Like I have my supernatural fifteen seasons on Blu-ray. You know what, I mean? what, what else? What else does a girl need? It's fine. It's all there. It's covered everything. Uh, you know what? I would like. I would like. This would be very useful for things like the ranking going forward, where you could go right. I need the complete works of this director collected, uh, and I know you can get the complete works of most directors collected, but there are some directors who slip through the cracks. Or or. You know, I would love, 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 love to do a Sherlock Holmes movie ranking or a Dracula movie ranking. But there's so many films and they're so scattered. So it'd be amazing to have the definitive Sherlock Holmes 
movie box set. So you have everything from the Basil Rathbone movies all the way through to things like the 7% Solution and you know even Sherlock Holmes's Smarter Brother. And then in the modern day, the best of them, obviously, the Robert Downey Jr. Guy Ritchie movies, um, which I do really like. But, you know, I would like something like that or the Dracula's. I think that the danger with both of those particular box sets is you'd get them, you'd put them on your shelf. One day, Kim Newman would come over, take a casual glance at the box set and go, that's not complete. Yeah, I know. But here's, here's the thing. I'm, I'm, that would involve inviting Kim into my house and I know the rules. If you invite Kim into your house, he can come and go as he pleases at any time. So I don't do that. Thank you very I'm much indeed. Sure. That's the, okay. Uh, all right. One more, one more, one more, one more. Uh, here's a good one from Dean BMMV. Oh. Oh. <laughs> we were just talking about Supernatural and you said Dean. Yes. I was, you know. This is from Dean Winchester. He says, which, is, which, is, which of my nipples is your favourite, left oh, or right? <laughs> uh, Dean Bowes says, which movie Chris would you pick to play Chris Kringle? So are we are we talking about one of the four Chris's? Are we like are we widening it out? Is Chris Walken on the table here? Chris Walken would be a great choice. He was immediately who I, th- I was thinking of as well. Mm. You can just imagine him, you know, you know, ho ho ho, and that would that'd be fun. So the Chris, who is the ultimate festive Santa, Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> What is it there? Is it the air of jollity yeah, that that definitely. pervades him at all times? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't think that would work somehow because he he doesn't allow chairs in his set. So therefore, how could he sit down? Therefore, how could any kids sit in his lap and then tell him what they want for Christmas? Christopherson could pull off the yeah. uh, grizzled beard look. He could. He'd he be could. a very good choice. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Also, I mean, Chris Pine is is getting a streaky beard these days. He's he's on his way <laughs> to Santa's beard. He's he getting is. a streaky beard. Would he be the sexiest Santa? Would he usurp Kurt Russell if he became Santa? Well, you know, if, that, that's I think Dean Bowes meant any of the four Hollywood Chris's. So I Pratt, think he probably Ryan, did. Evans and Hemsworth. So who do you think out of those four would be the best Santa? Hemsworth. Hench Santa. Because he could carry all the toys basically in one hand. Well, if I mean, we have a hench Santa coming up in a film with Chris Evans in it. So this is kind of confusing. If Big Red ever comes out... But red one, red one, red one, red one. Sorry. Um, mm-hmm. So isn't that kind of you know? I don't know if that's messing with the the, the premise of the question already. That's um, J.K. Simmons. Is he hench? He is hench. Yeah. Have you or seen is he just a man? No, he's is he, hench. Is he, is he hench man? Have no, you not seen just... pictures? Oh, I see what you're. I hench. have, but he was hench when he was doing he was doing uh, Commissioner Gordon in mm. the Snyder films. But yeah, but he's he's standing next to the Rock. He's still so... looking pretty hench. I feel like so. Yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad. Um, Hell Spells, who would be your who would be your your Chris of choice? Your Hollywood Chris of choice? I think it would be Chris Pine, like I say. I think the the beard is closest. He's got the kind of cool laid back attitude. I feel like uh that would be an interesting angle on Santa, one that we haven't seen over much. Um and and yeah, you know, we've we've had the sort of sexy Santa in recent years with Kurt Russell, uh with I would say David Harbour as well in Violent Night. So I feel like there's 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 territory to be explored here that uh, more films need to get into. All right. Okay. I would go for Pratt because it's been about five minutes since he sent uh, Twitter into uh, paroxysms of just rage. 
So I think uh, if we can do that, that'd be great. You so know? you're thinking if he's going to ruin people's childhoods, like go all out, ruin all of the childhoods, not well, just yeah. the people who played Nintendo or yes. liked Garfield. And it doesn't matter. Chris, Chris Pratt's Santa, it doesn't matter whether you've been naughty or nice. Every child, every boy, every girl gets a copy of the Super Mario Brothers movie on Blu-ray. Oh, I'm sorry, kiddies. I'm sorry. What have you done to deserve this? My crusade against the Super Mario Brothers movie will also never stop. I'm serving notice right now. All right, if you want to have your question read out in the Apple Podcast, good news, we are not taking a break over Christmas in order to make episode 600, episode 600 in time. So we will be doing an episode next week, and I'm not expecting there to be a great deal of movie news. There will be some movies to talk about. We'll be reviewing the likes of Boy and Heron and Ferrari and Next Goal Wins. Uh, but not a lot of movie news, I'm guessing. Hollywood tends to shut down over the Christmas period. So we may need some questions just to keep us going and just to pad out the episode to an acceptable length. So uh, please do get in touch with us. I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter. Uh, you can slide into my DMs. You can reply to a panic shout out every now and again, or you can reply to any of my tweets once you've stopped laughing, of course. All right, should we have a guest? Please. Guests? Who do you want? Do you want Bradley Cooper and Kerry Mulligan, or do you want Rosamund Pike? Oh, Moraine Sedai. Moraine Sedai then. Rosamund, please. Rosamund Pike it is uh, for Saltburn. Emerald Fennell's second movie as director came out in the cinemas just a couple of weeks ago, but it's already hitting Prime Video as of today, the day you're listening to this, December 22nd. And Rosamund Pike has been getting a lot of traction, a lot of nominations for her fantastic performance in the movie as Elspeth, who is the mistress of the house, the mistress of Saltburn and the mother of Jacob Elordi's character who strikes up an interesting relationship with a Shifty Barry as the movie progresses. We sent along virtually Mike Munzer, because Rosamund Pike was in New York doing this junket, taking a little break. I think she's shooting the Wheel of Time. I think she's shooting the Wheel of Time. Anyway, they had a simply capital time from all reports. So here is Mike Munzer talking to Rosamund Pike. Do please enjoy. Hello, Rosamund Pike. Hi, Mike. Can you can you see me as well? I can. I can. Yeah, absolutely. How are you doing? Very good. Very, very good here in New York. Christmassy New York. Yeah. Incredible stuff. And also, you were, congratulations. You, we just found out yesterday, right, at the time we we're recording this, that you were nominated for a Golden Globe for Saltburn. Which was a very, very exciting thing to wake up to. And then to have other members of the cast in New York with me so we could all celebrate together. That was really, really very nice. Amazing. Well, congratulations again. I'd love to hear a little bit about the journey of how you got to this point now nominated for a Golden Globe. I mean, when you first approached this project, when you first read the script and discovered the character of Elspeth, did you have any idea that you'd be sat here now a Golden Globe nominee? Not in the least, no. Not not a character that I... I mean, a character I definitely wanted to play because, as, you know, in, in some ways she reminded me of the character I'd played in in an education all grown up, you know, it had the same, I kind of saw that she could have that same impact in that, you know, that can come from in a, in a world of very clever people, somebody a little bit shallow and a little bit dim can add some comedic relief into that. <laughs> so I, 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 you know, somebody very, you know, they're different obviously, um, but you know, Elspeth is just so wonderfully self-centered and self-aggrandizing that I found her very funny. And I, I had hopes that an audience might. Um, I think it was just lovely, especially after all my time playing Moraine Damadred in The Wheel of Time, who's a woman with a cause, you know, above 
anything else, she puts her cause first. To play Elspeth, who's a woman with absolutely no cause, in fact, sort of absolutely nothing to do, was was very relaxing. Um, but did I see it as a role that would be, you know, lauded or given accolades? No, I certainly did not. No, that's a great surprise and a, and, and still bewildering, if I'm honest. Yeah, what did you make of Elspeth? How, did you like her as a character? Do you think that she's a good person or does she think she's a good person or is she just inherently a bad person, do you think? I think she's damaged. Um, I think, you know, we, we unpicked a lot about you know, the reasons that she would have married Sir James, um, you know, possibly she was a bit off the rails and and without really any direction or meaning in her life or perhaps any particular support. And then this older man sort of started taking her out and, and, and she saw something that kind of could be comforting and provide some stability. But then, of course, it took her away from the from the world in which she felt seen and adored and celebrated you know, and as she, you know, as as is often the case with a with a young woman who has been invited everywhere because she's young and beautiful, what happens as that woman ages is they they still want it. So Elspeth is a woman who needs to be needs to be adored, and she does that by bestowing kindness on strangers because she knows the power of you know, her gaze above all others, because with her gaze comes the whole package of Saltburn and the house and the magic of that. And and so she bestows her gaze like a sort of benevolent goddess in her, in her mind. And, and, and everybody falls under her spell, which she loves. But of course, she doesn't actually have the genuine kindness to back it up. <laughs> so that's where the, you know, the whole act falls, falls apart because, She's not inherently a, a, a kind and loving person. She doesn't have enough self-love to be able to, I mean, real self-compassion, I should say, not, not self-love, but self-compassion to be able to offer compassion, true compassion to others. And I think compared to other characters that are constantly kind of maybe scheming or hiding their true intentions or hiding their true identities, she is very much what you see is what you get, right? Like this is Elspeth. Uh, she's not hiding who she is. Everything is very much on the surface with her, it seems like. Yes, I think it is. And she, you know, she, you know, she loves the idea that her stories of her posh friends who've had heroin addictions can in any way relate to, you know, Oliver's experience as we are led to believe his experience has been. I mean, she just immediately puts herself in the story. That's what's so sort of wonderfully naive about her. You know, as soon as she she asks about him. She says, of course, I've got so many friends with addiction. Um, and, and that's just what people do like that. How are you? Well, let me tell you about me. Um, you know, the person who just brings it back to them all the time. I mean, it was, it was great fun because sort of anything, anything I looked up that was happening in 2007 or six, I could sort of use as improvisational material. So, you know, for instance, it was the year that Keith Richards was reported to have snorted his father's ashes. And um, and I definitely made that into dinner party conversation. Of course, you know, Keith invited me to Mystique and offered me a line of his father's ashes. But, you know, I, I declined because I thought, you know, it's not right, is it, to separate the soul like that? You know, so whatever it was, you just take anything that was in the news or, or Karl Lagerfeld going off to get his to his fantastic weight loss. That was another thing that was happening at the time. 
Well, Carl came to me to ask, you know, how I'm able to stay so slim. Um, and eventually I sent him, you know, so whatever the story was, I just put her at the center of it, which obviously she wasn't, but, you know, she could, she was so, she's so um, delusional that she's able to believe she was. And tell me a little bit about that decision that Emerald made to set this film in 2006, 2007. Is there something specific about that time? Like, why did she choose that particular era to tell this story? Well, it was definitely the time that Emerald herself was at Oxford University, so she knew it and could be really specific about it. I mean, I think the reason Saltburn as a whole film works and can in and can allow people who who wouldn't think this was a film for them to enjoy it is because you are being let into a world with absolute specificity. So you can sort of see it and you realize, oh, this isn't a kind of film that will exclude me because I'm not part of that world. It's a film for us to kind of um, forensically examine that world, uh, judge it if we want, be turned on by it, be shocked by it, hate it. You know, she's open to all of it. Um, and also, of course, it was this time where where women were still so um, shamed and I think that's a really important ingredient in Saltburn. If you, we, we, our, our set was was covered with magazines, Heat magazine, and um, all those kind of, you know, UK tabloidy magazines. Hello, what are, you know, all those ones that that would sort of build someone up to kind of tear them down in the next breath. You know, you know, look at her looking fabulous on the red carpet, and then look at her at three a.m. You know, falling out of a cab. It was that kind of era where it was. You know, look, she looks like a lady, but look at her sweat patches. Or it was, they, people were really hunting for kind of disgrace and shame. And, and that's why girls were falling prey to eating disorders and, and trying to, you know, tr trying to avoid the, the, the pitfalls of being judged and shamed. And I think that was very specific. It, it really matters for both Elspeth and for Venetia, um, her daughter, who's, who's kind of living as Felix Catton's little sister. And, you know, that's what a girl was at that time, the appendage of a, of a glamorous man. Tell me a little bit about this world that Emerald Fennell created then, because, you know, it's something, there's something so vibrant about it, you know, that she really kind of immerses us in this particular time and place. The visuals are so kind of dazzling and stunning. What was it like being on set kind of and being in this world? Because am I right in thinking you did actually live in the stately home where you were filming, you lived there for a few weeks, right? Yes, I did. I, I lived in a nursery wing with a lot of sort of toys stashed into cupboards from the 80s, you know, sort of broken Barbies and, um, you know, cook, cooking sets. And, and uh, it was, it was, it was like a time warp. Um, quite sort of amazing. And then perhaps part of Emerald's plan to, to kind of keep me out of the real world. Maybe, I don't know that, but um, I think she had been offered to stay there herself and had decided that she'd go mad if if she stayed there. And then she thought, but it could be quite good if Rosamond went mad. So I think she suggested to her producers that maybe they'd offer this up for me. And I, I sort of said yes. And then after three weeks when I realized I literally hadn't set foot in the real world, I thought I am starting to go a little bit crazy, but maybe this is the intention of our, you know, brilliantly anarchic and clever filmmaker um, to sort of, you know, to keep me, 
a bit sort of uprooted from having my feet on the ground, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And I guess that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you live in a place like Saltburn and you've got people doing things for you and you've got such a huge amount of land, you don't really ever need to leave, right? And it and, and I, I imagine it would cause you to be kind of cut off from the outside world and really lose touch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I didn't go to a supermarket or I didn't post my own letter or I didn't, you know. <laughs> and it does feel like, you know, I think we've always had a fascination with uh, the, the very, very wealthy and rich that are kind of 1% in store stories we tell, right? But I think there have been, uh, there's been a particular popularity in this type of story over the last few years, you know, what people are starting to call the kind of eat the rich genre, I guess, these kind of class satires, whether it's TV shows like The White Lotus, uh, films like The Menu, obviously Parasite, you know, Get Out. Why do you think right now we're getting such a kind of wave of stories like this and why they're so popular at the moment? Well, I think, you know, everybody who has for a long time been able to sort of turn a blind eye to inequalities that they don't want to stare in the face. You know, in recent years, even those people who've tried to be ostrich-like about them have been, you know, forced to reckon, you know, with, with, with the vast differences in the world, economic, social opportunity. Um, and I think... You know, it fascinates people, appalls people, and yet there's a kind of tussle over whether, you know, whether we we also need these things to get angry about. You know, we 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 sort do we need the wealthy to to be there in order to be in relation to them? You know, do we do we define? You know, you you can't be the other, or you can't have a political opposition or a social opposition unless there's something to be opposed to. You know, so you know, if we if we got rid of all these things that we feel conflicted about, we wouldn't there wouldn't be any drama anymore. I mean, it's a this is a sort of this is a sensitive topic, but it's it has to be considered. You know, the reason the menu is a you know I, I loved the screenplay of the menu. I thought it was so brilliant because, of course, you know, as you know, as the rich poor divide only kind of increases and the ultra rich get richer the experiences they are seeking are getting more and more exclusive and rarefied and people are, are making more and more elaborate kind of es escapes for these people because you know what how can they keep being, you know having the one-upmanship and the thing about the british upper class is that they rest comfortable in the fact that no one can buy into it. And that's what's so infuriating to outsiders. You know, you can buy a British stately home off an impoverished aristocrat, but you're never going to get the the blue blood. You're never going to get to be the, you're never going to get that that they had, that family had. And that's what the Cattons have in this film. And, you know, Oliver, however much he gets included or takes over or whatever, he will never get that. And it's the thing that is sort of infuriating and confounding and puzzling and, you know, and I think Emerald's very interested in that, you know, in our obsession with things we can't have and how we want to eat it and crush it and have it and have sex with it. And, you know, it's in order to kind of, you know, gain some sort of self-acceptance of yourself in relation to it. 
And, and Emerald Fennell obviously does such a great job in writing these characters and you will do such a great job in performing them because there is this tricky balance, right? Where they are larger than life. They are funny that, you know, there is satire here, but also there's something true and it feels like there's something real about these people, you know? They are real. I think that's the thing. You know, we're not playing caricatures. We're playing very real people. And it's the comedy comes from the fact that they exist and they're specific. And, you know, Richard's, Sir James and, you know, Elspeth, they're, I mean, Emerald said to me very early on, she said, do you think they have sex? I don't think they have sex. I said, oh, right, don't they? She said, definitely not. So I thought that was interesting. I mean, I think I, I then came to discover this thing called, you know, that there's a form of anorexia, there's sexual anorexia, which I got very interested in and thought that Elspeth probably has that, where you want to be, you know, the thing, if, if the anorexic, the food anorexic is mantra is that, you know, the thing I most desire is the thing I most fear, which is food then the sexual anorexic is the thing I most desire is the thing I most fear, or my greatest need is my greatest fear. Maybe it's that, my greatest need is my greatest fear. So so Elspeth wants to sort of lounge over the furniture and be seen as a kind of goddess, but actually real intimacy terrifies her. And I think that's what I had to unpick from her kind of childhood, which, you know, is not relevant for an audience, but for me to know growing up. Um, and it certainly gave me underpinnings for who this character is. So even when Barry's character says, it must be hard for Venetia with you being her mother. And Elspeth says, why? And and he says, because you're so beautiful. He gets her wrong. He he's Oliver knows, Oliver is so astute with what people want. So he knows what Venetia wants and he gives it to her. And he gets it wrong with Elspeth at that moment. She doesn't want to be flirted with. She does want to be just known to be beautiful, but she doesn't want a young man to kind of try and flatter her in that way. It's very complex, but the look she gives him at that moment is, oh, you know, oh dear. (laughs) <laughs> You've got it all wrong, haven't you? So he's a bit wrong-footed at that point. But then, of course, he wins by the end of that scene because he gets her on another score, which is that knowing that she needs an out and a and a kind of sense of a, 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 the appeasing of her conscience for having dismissed poor dear Pamela, rather cruelly got rid of her friend, and she know and he knows that she wants her conscience absolved, mm. and he provides that. Yeah. So he wins in the end, but yeah. Yeah. And I think this is the thing, right? There's a lot of interesting people are reading into these characters and into this story in different ways. You know, the film kind of invites different interpretations. And I just want to finish by asking you how you found the reaction to be generally, because from what I've experienced, it's been quite a polarizing reaction to this film, right? Some people have loved it. Some people have hated it. There, There don't seem to be many people that kind of fall in between, right? It's a really polarizing film. Um, did you, did you kind of guess that would be the case? when you were making this? I think, you know, I uh, I was doing an interview in New York and I said, um, you know, to the person who was d- d- doing the Q&A, I said, I hear that you, you 
you really you like the film? And she said, oh, I loved it. She said, I, it would be awkward if I was here and I didn't. And I said, well, I don't think it would. I think if you hated it, that could also be interesting. It would be only be if you were sort of lukewarm about it that we wouldn't have a very interesting conversation. Yes. But if you'd hated it, I think we could definitely, you know, provide the audience with some entertainment. Um, I mean, I've loved the fact that in the kind of 20-something generation, there's this feeling that this is a movie that will define their generation. You know, a lot of people have said that, like, this is going to be the movie that our generation will go back and watch and watch and watch, and it'll be kind of cult for us. You know, I'm, I work with a lot of people in their 20s, and that's what people are saying. And that's very exciting to me. I've, I've seen the evidence that adults, you know, who might normally wait to watch something on their televisions have gone to the cinema to see it. That's very, I've been waiting for that since Gone Girl, for that zeitgeisty yeah. film where people want to see it in the theater. Um, I think because of the actor's strike, uh, you know, Emerald's, you know, brilliantly helmed the the kind of publicity for the film, but I have, you know, noticed how her background has been sort of the prism through which everyone views the film, which I think is really unfair because I don't think they would have done that to a male filmmaker in the same way. I don't think Alexander Payne gets his background sort of examined when we're looking at the holdovers or, you know, in the same way. And I think it, I think it, it, it unsettles people, this film. It's confronting. It's confronting, I think, particularly to some men. I think it's confronting to their idea of masculinity. You know, the exactly, you know, the what Oliver represents and the way that he operates and the way he the way he seduces people, I suppose, and, and seduces the audience to a degree, unsettles people. Um and people are asked to watch some pretty extreme stuff, things that shock them and make them feel. But I like that. I I relish being in films that 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 do that. I look for it actually. <laughs> <laughs> Rosamund Pike, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been this has been fun. Thank you. Okay, that was Mike Munster talking to you. Rosamund Pike and Saltburn is available right now for you to see on Prime Video. Would you recommend it for a bit of Christmas Day viewing, guys? <laughs> not if you're with your family. Absolutely not. Do it. <laughs> but if you're on your own with other, you know, adults, then it, it is quite a lot of fun. Not because it's porny, I should, I should qualify. That's not the reason, but, you um, know. No, well, there's some bits that you wouldn't necessarily want to watch ne next to your grandparents if they're easily shocked. That's all I'm saying. When you say bits, you mean... I, I do mean bits. I do mean, mean bits. bits. Yes, I mean bits. Mean, I mean yeah. both both set scenes of the movie and also bits. All right. Okay. So let's move on to movie news, and there is quite a bit of it, which is which is good. Hollywood has been uh, stocking up on the movie news just before we break for Christmas. So that's very nice of them indeed. Uh, the first thing is that Warner Brothers are apparently investigating a an acquisition of Paramount Pictures. And, uh, you know, they are in talks. Davis Aslav, in an attempt to rehabilitate his image, has decided to go after one of the most storied and venerable and historic studios in, uh, in all of Hollywood because that sweet, sweet library, baby. IP, IP freely. Um, this doesn't, this doesn't feel good, does it, Hells Bells? It really doesn't. No, I think just the, the era of consolidation of all these studios is uh, not, I just think it's not great for us as film fans. I think you want a certain number of studios competing with each other and not essentially swallowing each other whole. 
and I I have concerns about um, the effect of this will have on, you know, um, on on everything. To be honest, on, on you know, that you need competition, you need different studios working, frankly, against each other. You need uh, intellectual property, if we're going that way, to be owned by different people. I think it's already a worrying situation when you know, single studios like Disney, for example, and increasingly like Warner Brothers own so much um, of the kind of cultural landscape. And um, the more independent studios we have, the better. I mean, it feels weird to be, you know, saying this about there there are only sort of six major studios um, most of the time through Hollywood history. Um, But at least six surely is a a good number to be aiming for, not sort of getting down to two or three. And there have been rumours about Paramount being a target for a while. Um, Given the current stewardship of Warner Brothers itself, I'm not super excited about Warner Brothers in particular owning Paramount, Um, you know, but uh, I just, I, uh, I, I, They're coming for Star Trek, Helen. They're coming for Star Trek. I know. And that's what I'm, you know, that's one of the many things I'm worried about. But genuinely, Star Trek is is a concern. I don't want it sort of uh, disappearing into a vault uh, the next time. I hear they're already working very, very hard on the new movie, which will be entitled Star Trek Tax Write Off. Uh, It's going to be, it's going to be absolutely belting. Chris Pine's in it, but you'll never know. Yeah. And look, I, I I know it's I know it's all business, and I don't want to sound like it's the end of the world when it may just be something that doesn't seem to have an immediate effect. But I do think that competition is good, monopolies are bad, and the increasingly monopolized world we live in is not producing great results for either art or commerce or individual consumers or you know people. So I I have concerns. And, and of course, this has happened recently with Disney taking over Fox. Yeah. Uh, and again, for that sweet, sweet back catalog, that sweet, sweet IP. Um, and we had misgivings at the time. And yes, it's great to be able to go on Disney Plus and see Die Hard nestling next to, oh, I don't know, the princess and the frog. But at the same time, it just feels like there should be a, a few more fingers in the pies, so to speak. It feels like this could be, this could have very, very negative repercussions. Where's it going to end with just one super studio making three movies a year? With just Amazon, Google, and Apple, like, you know, and Disney owning us all, I just and Netflix, yeah, yeah. I mean, and even those five, I think one of them will drop at some point. I, I, I just, it's, it's not a great situation to be in. It's, it's too much of the world being concentrated in the hands of too few individuals, and it doesn't seem to bode well. But mm. you know, I am a big old lefty, so I would say that. You are, you are. Uh, we shall see. We shall see what happens. Jimbo, any thoughts on this? I mean, much the same as Helen. I think it's. I don't think it bodes well. Um, I don't think it bodes well for anyone. I think it bodes especially ill because of, as we said, what Warner Brothers has been up to recently uh, under Zaslav's stewardship. But uh, I mean, look, who knows? It's hard to say. It's hard to predict what this will be. But again, you, when you have different studios, you get variety. You get them competing with each other, and 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 you know, a lot of the sort of promising fox strands ceased to be when Disney took over. And so we can imagine that will probably be the case going forward if Warner's acquire Paramount. Paramount don't have a huge amount of, I would say, forward. They've obviously got Mission, which is a massive deal, and they had Top Gun. They've got Mean Girls, in fact, coming out at the beginning of next year. So they've got a few little things. But, they, I mean, there's nothing I would say. I think it is more about the strength of the back catalogue than it is the IPs they've got going forward. Who knows whether it will even happen? Who knows whether it will be negative if it does happen? But it's, yeah, it's hardly what I would describe as a Christmas miracle. Well, there was another major story, no pun intended, uh, broke this week. The news that Jonathan Majors, 
who plays Kang in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and was also in Creed 3. So he has been on trial for the last few weeks uh, in New York, uh, accused of assaulting and harassing his girlfriend or ex-girlfriend, Grace Jabari. And this week he was indeed found guilty of two misdemeanor counts of harassment and assault. He was also found not guilty of one count of assault and one count of harassment as well. He will be sentenced next year, but Hollywood's judgment came a little more quickly than that. Marvel Studios announced soon after that they were releasing him uh, and they were no longer going to use him going forward as Kang the Conqueror or any version of Kang that is in the MCU. Uh, This was widely expected, of course. Uh, There was a sense that, that Marvel were just waiting to see what happened before they moved ahead with any um, any action. But what's your take on this? Uh, in some ways, I guess it's, it's heartening that Hollywood takes this stuff seriously now in a way that they have not historically. Um, you know, uh, but it also makes you feel awful for all the other people who are, who are tied up in this. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a very huge, uh, upset i think for a lot of people who were kind of invested in him as a as a star he is a very talented actor but he also clearly has um behaved in some very upsetting and very uh harmful ways and another film that he had worked on recently magazine dreams which premiered at sundance and was picked up i think by searchlight which of course is now owned by disney as well um that has suddenly dropped off the release schedule and you don't know if and when that's ever going to come out so yeah, it's it's a it's a a huge huge blow to his career, and it, but you know the jury find that the, the facts proven, and they had to do the right thing. So uh, yeah, here we are. It's I don't know what's going to happen for Marvel yet, but um, I hope that this brings some peace to Grace at least. Indeed, indeed. I mean, this was always coming. I think like we've talked about it on this podcast already. Like I don't think it was ever any doubt that he was going to get dropped from this. I also don't think there was a great deal of doubt that the Kang Dynasty was never actually going to happen. Now, to be fair, they've not announced that they are no longer doing Avengers: The Kang Dynasty, though I believe they have started talking about it. Or something I've read internally is just the next Avengers film. So one or two things will happen. They'll either recast him, which I could absolutely do. The Kang Dynasty is full of variants and different people. You could a hundred percent swap them out for something else. Or as I suspect they'll do, and to be honest, I think they probably should do i would drop the entire kang thing completely and just go a different route for the new avengers film i don't think it's necessary yes they're sure they've set up that character but they could absolutely go in a different direction you know partly because it's fruit of the poisonous tree and you can't really get away from it at this point i feel like they've tainted that storyline now a little bit uh and and also because you know i don't think any of us were that excited about Kang as the big bad for the next Avengers? I'm sure there are far more interesting ways they could go anyway. So maybe they could look at this as a you know a way to, to work the slate clean and, and just do something different. Yeah, that feels more likely to me as well right now that they'll just um, put Kang aside as well and just avoid, sidestep any questions of it. It also gives them the option of just not really prolonging this conversation and sort of saying, no, we... In, in, completely independently decided to go with a totally different story um you know we change things all the time and this is just such a, such an occasion so i i think there's there's every chance that you know this is doom's big moment or galactus's big moment or whoever all right well we shall see how that unfolds over the coming weeks and months uh any other movie news uh, something that kind of tickled me, actually, was that uh, Hideo Kojima, famous computer game developer Hideo Kojima, announced that A24 are making a film of his video game Death Stranding, 
which I don't know if either of you played this game, but uh, you... Oh, you avidly. Are, yeah. Uh, you are Norman Reedus, and you are essentially a post-apocalyptic courier with a baby strapped to his chest, not to look after the baby, but the baby serves as some kind of technical early warning system for these sort of ghosts called BTs or beached things, which are kind of weird, invisible, tethered specters who turn into giant whales and attack you. And the gameplay is essentially essentially busy work, ferrying stuff around for people. So they'll give you like a, it's basically delivery of the game. So, uh, but, but also in this game is Guillermo del Toro and Edgar Wright. And there's a bit where Edgar Wright and Guillermo del Toro give you jobs, whether you hear, here's a parcel, take this job, send it here, here's a bunch of magazines, take it somewhere else. I, uh, in the end, did not finish this game it's very 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 weird Hideo Kojima's uh, games like Metal Gear Solid are often very very weird but um but this is a very odd one I'm fascinated to see how this plays out as an actual movie because it like I say it's deeply weird but the story is also slightly rambling and confusing as well um there is rain that ages you when it touches you so you literally grow old if you are out in the rain um yeah it's it's a strange one Hmm. I'm Intrigued and um, and terrified. Yeah, be both so, of those things. I think that's wise. Okay. All right. There's a couple of bits of casting news as well. So uh, I hadn't really noticed this, but I've just been reading that Ben Stiller has signed on to star in a new film that will be directed by David Gordon Green, mm. uh, who is not making the Exorcist sequel next. Um, in fact, I don't think anyone's going to be making an Exorcist sequel anytime soon. But instead, he's going to be making a comedy drama called Nutcrackers, uh, which is about... A uh, a guy played by Ben Stiller, who must travel to Ohio to look after his four rambunctious nephews. I'm just literally reading this off mm. deadline. After the parents die in a car accident, what begins as a three day trip to find foster care turns into weeks of farm life mayhem, and the realization he doesn't need to find them a home. They found one for him. So you don't need to see the movie now. You know what, what <laughs> I, happens in the end. I mean, yeah, I've, I also feel like I've seen this movie before, but it was called Baby Boom, and also it was called like Raising Helen, and also it was called that one with. Um, Josh Demel and that girl in it. I feel like I've seen it quite a few times, and it doesn't usually get a serious write-up because it's usually like a woman leading it. Um, yeah, well, it's but, about you know, time men had to shot Helen, and so uh-huh. it's finally a man stepping into Diane Keaton's shoes, which would be uncomfortable. Actually, I'm pretty yeah. sure she wears very comfortable shoes. She has all those like suits. Yeah, no, she's very well dressed. When you say Josh Demel and that woman, who do you who do you mean? I don't remember that one. It wasn't very good. But there was one where two people who don't like each other who were like maybe the best man and the maid of honor at the dead couple's wedding end up looking after their kids. It was something like that. Look, right. it's not very good. Oh, oh, oh. Catherine Hagel? Yes, that sounds right. Yes, 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 yes. Anyway, I also read today that Ben Stiller Life as we know it? Li- yeah, Life I'll as do. we know it. That'll do it. Life as we know it. Ben Stiller hasn't been in a movie for six years. Apparently, Whoa. like uh, as a lead, he has not been in the lead. I can't even remember the last time he was in a movie, quite frankly. So this is apparently his first movie in six years. He's been obviously directing and doing a very good job of it on things like Severance. But at the same time, come on, you're Ben Stiller, act. Come on. I mean, I know Sulander 2 was bad, but come on, there's no need to react that negatively to it. Well, maybe there was. Anyway. Maybe there was. Maybe there was. Um, anything else you want to talk yes, about? Yes, I want to talk news? about Love Lives Bleeding which Ooh. is the new film from uh, Rose Glass, who, of course, made Glass. Saint Maud. 
which was amazing. And this stars uh, Kristen Stewart as Lou, who is a uh, reclusive gym manager who becomes obsessed with uh, Jackie, who's a bodybuilder played by Katie M. O'Brien. Um, and, uh, you know, their love affair would be probably enough to keep her busy. But what do you know? Lou is also getting trying to seek revenge against uh, Ed Harris, her evil dad, who has the worst haircut <laughs> of anyone I've ever seen He's gone full in this film. Oh, it is. It is horrifying. Um, but yeah, it looks it looks way, way, way cool. And it has Twitter film, Twitter, absolutely an uproar. So um, I'm pretty excited to see that. It's a very good trailer. Mm. It looks really, really great. It looks very, very striking. It looks like it looks like the kind of movie they made in the nineties. Mm. You know, like a like a like a Red Rock West or like a David Lynchy type film. Fantastic. I should mention very quickly a couple more things. Uh, Gina Prince Bythewood is directing Children of Blood and Bone, mm. which is a cool fantasy novel, and I think she'll do a very good job with that. It's sort of rooted in, you know, instead of being rooted in kind of Northern European mythology, this one's kind of rooted in African yep. mythology, and it's very cool. Um, and also Ridley Scott. It's been like five <laughs> minutes since his last film. He's got his next film you know, getting back up and running. So naturally he's planning film number three uh, of his of his to-do list. And it's called Bomb, all caps. It has to star Jerry now, Butler. It has to. It has to. I tell you what, it has to do well at the box <laughs> office or the headlines write themselves. But um, but yeah, this is an adaptation of a story by Kevin McMullen. And um, the short story it's based on, at least, has a hostage nego- negotiator called on to duty the night before his wedding because a man is basically standing on a newly uncovered, unexploded World War II bomb and says he's only going to speak to this guy. And this sets off a mad chain of events where Frankie is struggling against this mad bomber with whom he has a past. That's exciting. I'm I'm here for it. There isn't a script yet, but I'm here for it when there is. And there's got to be a script. How can there not be a script? How can you Apparently just have... There isn't a script. There was a short story, and now the author is going to try right. and adapt it into a script. And I'm sure he's going to do a good job because everyone went nuts for this short story. And there was a bidding war and Disney's 20th studios, just put the fox back on, <laughs> um, emerged triumphant. Yeah. That's exciting. That I is think that's exciting. cool. Yeah. 20th century studios, indeed. Uh, yeah. Wow. That's exciting. Uh, there's a remake of Emmanuel, uh, which is which is on the on the go, which is very, very exciting. <laughs> is indeed. it? Um, is it? it? Yes. The French filmmaker Audrey Dewan is uh, she's the one who is directing it and oh, no. uh, it has just finished production uh and in the title role is Nomi Merlon the French uh-huh. actress and Naomi Watts and Will Sharp are in the cast as well and this is a reimagining of um the the books <laughs> the books Emmanuel Arsan's French novel which is about a a bureaucrat's wife a businessman's wife who experiences something of a sexual awakening by having sex with as many people as she possibly can. Um, now, this movie, which came out in the, in the 1970s uh, and directed by a filmmaker whose name is pronounced very differently, but looks like Just Jackin, um, <laughs> when you write it down, is Juiced, J-A-E-C-K-I-N. And uh, Just Jackin is, of course, what a lot of people experience when they watched Oh, Emmanuel. boy. <laughs> oh. Well, look, that's, but that's a very respectable cast and a very good director. Yes. So yes. maybe this one's a little more, you know, a little less grubby. Um, and well, I, I think the, the first one... It's going to be classy. Well, it's going to be classy. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be classy. Yeah. It screams sure. class. Sure, sure. It mm. does scream class. Uh, I think it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be a new take on it. Uh, okay. With the emphasis, apparently... Uh, 
Audrey Dewan has said the emphasis is going to be on, uh, you know, not not being gratuitous, not being gratuitous. Sure. So like, you know, no no front bottoms and things like that. Well, it, it will be an interesting addition to the conversation that's been going on all year about can sex scenes ever be essential to the plot of the movie? The answer, of course, being yes. Um, but, yes. Uh, you know, this this will be an interesting wrinkle in the sort of puritanical wing of film Twitter that's out there. They'll be they'll be all a flutter. Honestly, they'll be just like well, they, they won't know how to how to handle this movie. The original Emmanuel uh, was a a major uh, part of my. Um, please don't finish yeah, that sentence. Please don't. We don't need of to. My, know. Um, we don't need to know that. Of my. No, um, we know you too well yeah. already. My dad used to get a friend of his who uh, who uh, taped things off Sky, and he taped horror films off Sky for me. So I give him lists of horror films, and uh, so he taped Reanimator one night, but he left the tape running. And on afterwards was Emmanuel. Which one? And I became very popular. One. The first one. The first one. The first reanimator and the first Emmanuel. Uh, and so uh, I became very popular in my school for a number of weeks. <laughs> Handing a tape around. So, so there you go. Anyway, speaking of sexual awakenings, uh, it is New Empire Week. And oh, wow. Segway. <laughs> but, Amazing. On, what a segue. On the cover is Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. So... The first Planet of the Apes was very much part of my sexual life. Oh, God, no, stop. <laughs> no one needs to know. This is exciting, though. It's like the return of that series. There's been a big old time jump since that. Uh, obviously, director Wes Ball we spoke to, Owen Teague was in it, and Kevin Durand, uh, the writers as well. And so this is 300 years after Matt Reeves' trilogy. A lot has changed on the planet in that time. And apes, as we might well imagine, are in the ascendant. So, yeah, that's a very mm, exciting Because they're together strong. They are together strong. Would you say, James, they're in the ape ascendant? No. Oh. <laughs> What else is in the issue? It's a big old review of the year of 2023, this very, very year of ours. Uh, so we look back over the last 12 months. We've got uh, a big old look at uh, Oppenheimer, uh, where we've got Nolan himself talking about the film and reflecting on its success, which is very, very exciting. Uh, we look at Barbie, of course. You can't look at Oppenheimer without looking at Barbie. We speak to America Ferreira, mm. uh, which was a fantastic interview that we did, uh, talking all about that fantastic uh, monologue that she does in Barbie, which is arguably one of the greatest scenes of the year. Oh, God, what else have we got? David Lynch talking about that amazing uh, role or cameo, depending on what you want to call it, in The Fablemans, mm. which is fantastic as well. Uh, he has a phenomenal uh, anecdote about how he was paid, which was apparently in Cheetos, so that's useful. Uh, that was brilliant. Oh, God, what else is on there? Rye Lane, Chris, your beloved Rye Lane. Mm. Yes, I know. I know. I, I, I was gutted not to be able to do that one. But we spoke to David Johnson and Vivian O'Para uh, in Peckham. Uh, which is nice. Uh, that was that was good. Uh, so that's yep. exciting. I'm so delighted about this because, you know, this is the time of year when everyone's kind of looking back and it's such a lovely, lovely review of the year. And there's so much, so much great stuff inside the issue. And there's, lo there's loads of genuinely really, really great uh, interviews and insights. And it's just, it's just a ton of fun. It's a ton of fun. Kihi Kwan talking about Loki. Uh, the man himself, Ouroboros, which is very, very good. Uh, what else do we have in the issue? The holdovers. We've got to talk about the whole Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, oh, which I have it. yet to see, but it's apparently phenomenal. Uh, so good. Yes, looking forward to that one. All of Us Strangers, Andrew Hayes' new film oh. uh, is then as well. Paul Meskel and Andrew Scott talking about that. We've got a fantastic shoot and interview with Jodie Comer as well, uh, which is very, very cool because she's had a great year as well. So it is a, it's a lovely issue. Lots of good stuff in it. Looking back, looking forward looking all around uh and you know apes there's a lot of good stuff inside the issue 
uh, as Chris Evans, the best Chris Kringle, uh, once <laughs> said. Uh, in my section, which is the best section, hands down, um, I believe it's called Final Cut. Uh, it is, uh, we have an amazing breakdown of past lives with Celine Song and her stars, Greta Lee, Teo Yu, and John McGarrow. There's a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem spoiler special there for you to read about. We rank the movies of 1994. Uh, there's uh, a really, I genuinely found this really uh, emotional. I did this interview with uh, Oliver Parker, who is the director of The Great Escaper, which um, in, which is the final film of both Glenda Jackson and Michael Caine. And we talked about that. And uh, that's a fairly moving piece. Um, there's, uh, I'm, as you know, I'm in Northern Ireland, so there's something happening in the background here. So yeah, hopefully that won't interfere with your listening pleasure too much. Um, there's a lot of great stuff as well in the news section. First word, we have a look at Ghostbusters Frozen Empire, Lisa Frankenstein. We speak with the new Doctor Who, Shooty Gatwa, and Jean-Claude Van Damme is an absolutely insane pint of milk. It is a cracking issue. It is absolutely one of the best issues we produced this year, and it is on sale right now in all good, evil, and virtual news agents. Can't say fairer than that, folks. Rush out and buy it. You still have time to buy this, or indeed a subscription to Empire Magazine, and a subscription to the Spoiler Specials, and a subscription to Pilot TV Plus, as well as a great big Empire Jamboree. Oh, and the Empire VIP Club. Why get anyone anything that's not Empire-related for Christmas? That's basically what I'm saying. You could just go nuts. Go to town on Empire. Oh, no. There it is. It is an absolute banger of an issue. And uh, go out and get it now. Merry Christmas, everybody. All right. Should we have a final guest this week? Yes, please. And it's going to be two guests, actually, because I forgot. <laughs> and it is Bradley Cooper and Kerry Mulligan, who are the stars of Bradley Cooper's new film. His second film as director is called Maestro. And it is a... An unconventional biopic. It's not really a biopic because it skips an awful lot of Leonard Bernstein's uh, achievements as a composer and as a conductor, the legendary Leonard Bernstein. Uh, it does not skip his inclusion in the classic REM song, It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine. And that is where I began this interview with Bradley Cooper and Kerry Mulligan, who plays his wife, Felicia. They are terrific in this movie and they had a really, really They've got a really lovely relationship, and I very much enjoyed talking with them about that. But, because it's me, we had to talk about R.E.M. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the stars and co-writer, producer, director. Anything else I'm missing, Bradley Cooper and Carrie Mulligan? Welcome both. Hey, thank you for having us. Yeah, that's a, it's a Pleasure. lot of jobs. It's a lot of jobs. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking, Fun I was jobs. like, what else? Yeah. Fun jobs. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Felt like one big job. Researcher, as Lenin, as Lenin uh, would say uh, when they asked what he did for his passport, he would say musician. <laughs> you know, so what, you kinda... just filmmaker. What, yeah. what do you what do you think of you? I think, yeah, yeah. right. Karen, yeah. how do you think of yourself when you think oh, about God. occupation? Uh, uh, student, <laughs> <laughs> always learning. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. I didn't call myself an actor for a long time because I found that then people would ask me what I'd been in. And then I'd name them and they, would, they wouldn't know any of them. So instead I was like, oh, I'm a student. And my friends make fun of me, but uh, uh, or like two friends, maybe I only have two friends. Oh. Uh, <laughs> that, but, but storyteller, that's what, that's what I tell my, that's, that's I tell my, tell my daughter. Yeah, yeah. 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 storyteller is the best yeah, way to tell kids. Because yeah. I mean, that's kind of encompasses it all. Yeah. It? Yeah. yeah. There you go. 
Maybe I should describe myself as a storyteller. Yeah, yeah. Than, storytellers. Yeah. Rather than journalist or whatever the hell it is that I profess to be. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, before we get into the film, I wanted to say I'm a huge, huge REM fan. So I was so happy to see that you managed to work It's the End of the World as We Know It. Yeah. Brackets and I Feel Fine, close brackets, yeah. into into the film. Yeah. Uh, was that always the intention? Of that, of that, no. You use that, that particular? Was, uh, I, you know... It's here's the sort of the the blessing of having so many years of uh, preparation. You sort of log certain images, ideas into a into a, a you know into an area of your brain, and you just sort of let it let it sort of stay there, and it finds its way. And we would do that on set too. There, for example, the end of the movie was something that we were up there, and I thought I want to just get you turning around oh yeah could be the end of the movie i know that it's probably going to be this other thing we shot but it might be this mm. and that was the rem i always um i wanted him you know he was in the convertible jaguar yeah uh top down if i wanted to play music we could hear it from the radio let's see you know and then uh towards the end i thought i think we can i, I think coming off of like the brevity of it all you know coming off of her death yeah. you know i feel yeah. fine that's the first lyric you hear yeah yes <laughs> It's, yeah. it's, it's that and then then leonard bernstein so i i i, I loved it um i thought it was the right place for it um that, and it's the and it also just shows i mean it, it, it serves many purposes story-wise yeah um it's the progression of time also like the fact that he is enjoying the 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 you know the song of the summer that has his name in it yeah um is reflective of the guy that we've gotten to know this whole time do you know whether he enjoyed that the fact that he was name checked oh, he, he did in our movie <laughs> <laughs> he loved it he was playing it for uh for his assistant <laughs> that's, that's all that matters uh, i love that i, I want to i, I assume ask. he loved it i can't yeah. imagine he didn't absolutely love it yeah i mean there's no question i would i would like bet the farm on that it's a hell of a thing especially since it's, it's the one that gets bellowed as well yes. it's great to do karaoke yes. by the way um but uh i want to ask about the the relationship that the, the two of you have as as actors but also as as director and actor uh and how it began and, and how it continued through the shoot but also after the shoot mm. how does it work what what is it like you know do you still slip into the same roles or are you very much can you can you become friends when you're when you're offset in a way, can you put work to you know work or learning or being a student to one side? I think it's all the same thing. It's just a relationship. I was about to say we're in the middle of a massive feud, <laughs> and since we've finished Thank filming, you know, we actually there was a frosty atmosphere. We don't speak anymore. <laughs> um, I've, no, never, I've never have you ever had I've never had a relationship like that. On a, I've been very lucky. With, no, I've with, never had yeah. that. But no, you but, hear you read about you know these stories, famous yeah. stories. Yeah, like, wow. there was a very funny thing that was happening when we were shooting, which you see in the stills of that we would start. I would I would sort of stand near him, just completely subconsciously mimicking his body language so there's these photographs where he's standing with his arms on like hip, hands on his hips like this staring at the floor and I'm 180 from him standing staring at the floor with my hands on my hips another one we're both going like that but like not at all we're both kind of holding our chins with, with our arms across there's no it was not conscious at all and someone you know our amazing still stalker Jason just snapped these pictures and it was like so it was a lot of the shoot where I was just sort of close to him being quiet <laughs> just like standing ready by i mean we were both um i mean i work i i i think we're closer now for the rest of our lives because of what we yeah. went through yeah um and i think that um which was something that felt like channeling not acting 
Um, and I felt like I experienced that with another person, which was her. Yeah. Carrie as yeah. Felicia. So that yeah. that's kind of like this odd um, supernatural uh, experience that we had together that I've never had with anybody else in my life. Yeah. Is that what you you felt as well? Yeah, totally. It was uh, it was it was you know wonderful and bizarre in a way that it would be. And then actually, when when Bradley wasn't Lenny, the the rare days where he was, it was like two days where he was just Bradley wearing his own clothes and not Lenny. By the time I, it was sort of odd to not <laughs> for him to not be Lenny. You know, I found it kind of harder. How was it for you? And those two days. Um, you loved it. Yeah, but it was the same. I mean, just I could I could sleep a little longer. Yeah, hey, you didn't have to get up at two in the yeah, morning. Yeah, yeah, but but it, but it, to me, it was the same. I mean, it was the same. There was no difference. I mean, it's still in you know, the same. I I want to get into this idea of channeling as well because you're both extraordinary in the film. I mean, and these are extraordinary characters that you're playing. And and Felicia is has got this. There's this wonderful thing about her where she's obviously aware of of the truth about about Lenny. And she, you let it be known. There's all these close-ups on you, and you let it be known with these micro expressions, the, the smile that doesn't quite reach the eyes. And I wondered where, how, how you do that, how you worked on that, and how you managed to present that to the camera. Is that something that you're aware of, or those micro expressions? Um, no, no, I, I don't feel like there was any kind of choices really. I think because we did so much preparation you know we worked on together for a long long time before we got anywhere near a film set and then and then quite intensely for this week where we just did Lenny and Felicia just the two of us for five days and we did this dream workshop and did all of this stuff it felt like not acting it felt like just sort of watching things and, or I just mean, be and, you know just... and she could have fooled me because I, I never anything that's in the film I never at least I never thought you had predetermined that. No, anything. No, no, no. You know, There's nothing. That's sort of the goal as a director it too. It was like you want to make sure it's yeah, it's alive. And that was so easy with uh, Carrie because she's just in the moment. Yeah. But Bradley would also make it so that I would get to set. He would all he'd be Lenny already, and the set would be set completely. You know, most of our sets were three sixty. So you walked into a room, not a film set. And there would no one be calling action. There'd be no sort of loud clapperboards. There'd be no kind of sense of, okay, this is the moment where you need to perform. So you sort of found yourself just, I just found myself sort of doing, you know, the scenes, but not really kind of having any kind of guard up, you know. And I think that's such an amazing gift that a director can give you that you're not, you don't go into sort of, you know, there's a real tension that comes in when you when you become self-aware, and I suffer from that terribly. That I just become very kind of self-conscious, and and I get in my own way, and then it all feels like acting, and then it feels awful. Right. Um, and he just, I guess, because he's a brilliant actor, but also a brilliant director, just knew to just clear out as much of that as humanly possible to remove all of the things that might make you think I'm in a film and not just I'm just here being this. So there wasn't. And because he, because the camera team was so amazing, and Bradley's communication with them was so amazing, you know, Mango, our Dolly Grip, and Scott Sakamoto, and these, and Matty, and everyone who was around the camera, 
was so empathetic. I mean, Mango cried a couple yeah. of times. Everybody Our was very was going, dialed in. You know, we spent everyone was so tremendous you, amount of time. Usually, trapping. if the camera comes that close to me, yeah. I'm like, Ugh. but with this, <laughs> it just felt like, oh, okay, we're all together. Together, yeah. we're all telling this bit of this story, and you know, everyone's sort of as focused on. The and truth I think of that, it. Do you think that that, I was thinking about that the other day, I think that that is also an asset to uh, having, working with the person who's acting and directing at the same time, because the, the lines between um, behind the camera and front of the camera are very blurred. Yeah. Because, I'll, and, and that is asking a lot of the actors, because as as Lenny directing the whole day, I will be directing as we're working and as I'm doing the scenes. So I will be talking to the camera department yeah. while we're shooting and as I'm doing it. But to me, let it all be the place yeah. and then no one feels like they're acting. Yeah. That's fascinating. It's crazy. It's crazy. It makes the crew it makes the crew feel like they're actors as well. And yeah. then you're that's not us and them pretending and, that they're not there. Yeah. It's you're not pretending there. they're not there. They are there, but they're also It's yeah. all part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there would be tons of times where you know, particularly during an embrace or like, you know, Bradley would be kind of beckoning the camera, beckoning? I can't yeah. talk. Beckoning. <laughs> yeah. We haven't slept very much. Um, but there would be, you know, he'd be like, right, Mango, get in. And he'd be, you know, but he'd be still as Lenny, but he would be pulling the camera towards us or pushing us into a position. And you didn't, it didn't break you out of the moment. It made you feel more kind of connected to the scene it was on i've never experienced anything like it, it was amazing that's phenomenal and uh, I, i'm also fascinated by the the kind of the the idea that obviously felicia was an actor uh, but lenny is a performer as well and this idea that they're always performing to some degree uh, lenny and, and correct me if i'm wrong on this bradley there's maybe only one or two scenes where he's truly alone in the film, maybe even one. I think there's one where he's screaming into the pillow. Yeah, and even that, he's aware that he's not alone uh, orally. Yeah. So he closes the door and does into a pillow because doesn't want her to hear his sorrow. Yeah. So even in that private moment, he's aware of how public it could be Absolutely. sonically. Yeah. Yeah. And for, right from the off, you have that opening shot, which yes. slowly reveals yeah, that, 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 being... that that's a huge part of the movie. Yeah. You know, to be able to uh, uh, explore that theme without it being a huge sort of uh, uh, um, uh, part of the script that we're talking about it. I didn't really want to talk about it at all, but actually what, what happens if we explore it cinematically, yeah. that whole idea of private, public. Yeah, there's a couple of times you reveal the idea that this this notion that they're being filmed, but we yeah. don't know initially that they're being That's filmed. Right. And yeah. you, you have this, that uh, the, the TV interview where he talks about the, the public and the private personas. And I, I thought that was a really interesting thing to 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 explore for right you yeah the film. You, you sort of first see them oh they're married now yeah. there's their daughter it's sort of that perfect thing they're coming around the corner they're That's kissing right, and yeah. then it's close encounters there's <laughs> yes. all these lights you're like what the fuck's going on and they're sitting down but is this their living room is that Edward R. Murrow what's happening that's the idea and you're like oh shit's changed <laughs> what was the attraction of that for you was that was that something that you 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 were drawn to that to that theme uh, the the visual of that, yeah, you, you know, it's as I, I uh, just one of the things that came to me. I just thought it'd be incredible to do that. Yeah, I don't know. It's like I mean, it's probably why I love doing this for a living. It's like thinking up, you know, shots and, and to story. And I just thought, oh, that, I don't know. I just thought like you think it's one thing, and is the and I just love this idea of like coming around the corner and then they just because that's sort of what's happened to their life. Yeah, and then the fact that they could be so honest in that environment is what we also discovered with all of the tapes that we listened to and, and interviews that you could watch. I mean, the Norton lectures of yeah. his young people's concert, he talks about being two different men yeah. 
two children about <laughs> Gustav Mahler. <laughs> and you're like, wow, this is unbelievable. The levels of what he's actually talking about. Yeah, yeah. And in that Murrow interview, which you could see yeah. uh, the actual interview that yeah. Murrow would do those things where you go in people's houses, I just changed a tiny bit of the dialogue that 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 uh, that Lenny s- uh, speaks in that scene, but. It's really kind of fascinating how comfortable and articulate and personal they're able to be in such a public setting. Also, when he's talking to Gruen, you know, you don't know that that's John Gruen, but uh, at the pool, you see very about the end of the world and Felicia being sad and there's an audio. It's being recorded. Yeah. 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 And was that something that that played into your interpretation of Felicia as well? Was there an element of performance for her also? Oh, yeah. I think it was a huge part of her. I mean, it was part of, I think, part of the attraction as well. I think there was a part of her, particularly when I went to Santiago, I met her sort of wider family and they felt, we talked we, we talked more there about the attraction of living in the Dakota and, you know, the, the, the pleasure that she found in beautiful things and nice things and the and the public facing stuff she didn't believe in fake friends though she had a real she they didn't suffer fools but they i think there was a part of her that was sort of you know there was she was happy with the trade off of what you could have from being in you know in the limelight the the and the negatives of that but she she had a very beautiful life and she liked beautiful things but um, but she didn't compromise on who she surrounded herself with. So she was she had a real kind of um, problem with people that felt sort of like celebrity friends. Um, but in terms of her work, I think so much of her work and what I found so fascinating about her was this, you know, this the way in which she sidelined her own career and life mm. uh, in service of his art, in service of what she felt, I think, probably was the bigger contribution sort of musically, creatively to the world. It was if I can do everything I can to support this talent, then that will be, a, in some way, I will be creating myself. Um, and whether that ultimately was the right decision for her, and, and certainly some of her wider family, you know, we had conversations about what would her career have looked like if she hadn't met yeah. any, you know, she, yeah. what would her stage career have looked like and her um, screen career and, um you know, had she not got, you know, she, by the time she got back to acting, she then got sick. So, you know, all of these sorts of moments that uh, that stemmed from her very, very determined decision as a young woman to kind of commit her life to him. Absolutely. Well, guys, I, I'm being wrapped up. Uh, there's so much I could ask about with this movie, the the, 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 the courtship, the way that's portrayed in the film, the, the beautiful long takes you do, but also the dynamic camera work as as you take us deeper into the relationship as well, but perhaps another time. But yeah. uh, but real quick, if, if I may, just ask very, very quickly about what you're both doing next. So, Carrie, you're doing, you've, you've just wrapped a movie with Adam Sandler, which which sounds completely bonkers, I, I have to say, <laughs> in the best possible way. Yeah, it is. I actually did that before Maestro. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, uh, it just hasn't, it, it's, it's still, because it's a very uh, CG-heavy situation because it's set in set in space um so uh yeah that uh, that was a while ago but yeah i have nothing now going forward i have no job 
Bradley. Yeah, me too. There's, we have no there's, jobs. There's this. We're parents. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're yeah. parenting. Students, students and parents. Separately, and parents. but parenting. Musician. <laughs> musician. Musician, filmmaker, artist. Yeah. Everything. Storyteller. Yeah. Storyteller. Storyteller. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Bradley, are you, right you, you've got nothing on at the moment. The bullet, is this, is this oh, happening? I, if, I mean, that would be wonderful. But we'll, yeah, I, I think that there has to be a script and all that kind of jazz. But um, Who needs a script? You're right. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Bradley, it's been an awesome pleasure. Thanks. Thanks. Thank so much. You. Cheers. Okay, that was Bradley Cooper and Carrie Mulligan, and Maestro is out right now on Netflix. Time to crack on with this week's reviews. Um, Jimbo? Hello. I drove 40 miles today to see Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, and then drove 40 miles back to do this podcast, so we should talk about Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, the last film officially in the DCEU. Is it going out with a high? I mean... No, I wouldn't say that it is. Um, so <laughs> this does reunite James Wan with Jason Momoa, Patrick Wilson, Nicole Kidman, and a little bit of Amber Heard, though admittedly not much, uh, for a continuation of the most successful of all the DCEU movies at $1.1 billion. Um and a lot has happened, frankly, since we left them. So, so Arthur Curry, aka Aquaman, has married Arthur Curry, Mira, Arthur Curry. Uh, he's married Amber Heard's Mira. Uh, they've got an Aqua baby now, which is very, very cute. He's been crowned king, and unfortunately, is being sucked in by the bureaucracy of having to run a kingdom, and is not having the best time ever. So, actually, it's probably good for him that Yahya Abdul Mateen II's David Kane, aka Black Manta, is still on a revenge trip, uh, and cunningly comes across a stash of Atlantean weapons hidden beneath the Arctic ice, accessible thanks to the wonder of global warning. He gets a magic submarine with sonic cannons and, crucially, a trident possessed by a zombie king. Yes, this is absolutely true. Uh, played by Game of Thrones, Pilu Azabek. Uh, and uh, essentially, he comes after him. He attacks Atlantis. The king, King Arthur, as we could call him, uh, looks to his brother for help and breaks Patrick Wilson's ocean master, Orm, out of prison, and the two of them attempt to fend off this new threat. Uh, so essentially, whereas the first one was, I guess, a kind of romancing the stone thing where it's uh, it was Arthur and Mira on an adventure, this is a buddy comedy where it is Orm and Aquaman sort of getting in scrapes and trying to save Atlantis and the world. Um, and honestly, I think those bits, when it's the two of them together bickering and fighting, where this film actually works like it's a lot of fun the banter's quite amusing if a little bit confusing but we'll get onto that in a minute I, the problem is is that the first film i thought really succeeded for two reasons I, th I thought it leaned into its silliness and it was a palate cleanser after the kind of grim seriousness of a lot of the other dc movies and this one by comparison feels quite restrained in that manner like it is still funny but it's not as funny and it's not as silly but also this doesn't have the invention like the first one just goes absolutely berserk it does everything you you name it it's throwing it at the screen and this feels quite paired back to me by comparison and honestly it just gets a bit boring the storytelling's a bit stodgy the mm. there's an eco fable in there where he's burning atlantean fossil fuels to heat up the earth and it just becomes quite tedious and then as it has become frankly wrote for these films it descends into a cgi fuckathon where it's really really hard to sort of work out what's going on or to really care where it's just zombies and fish and stuff people being thrown into things um the drumming octopus does return and he has his name he's topo he's actually got a name topo he's a tactical operations and pursuit octopus 
as I'm sure you'll guess. And at one point, you do see Topo riding a seahorse. So, you know, there's good stuff in here. But ultimately, but I felt a bit But he's an down. octopus. Don't they go faster than Apparently seahorses? Not. Apparently not. So, uh, <sighs> yeah, there's a whole sort of Skull Island sequence on land. There's some horror stuff in here. One tries to get in, but it doesn't really work for me. There was a bit where it felt like kind of like a uh, like a diet version of Deep Rising, uh, which I rather liked. But... Uh, yeah, I just I I felt it I felt it was rather disappointing. I don't think anyone was really expecting this to be, you know, DC going out with a massive bang like it was going to be some great unifying event, but it just felt a little bit I mean, I'm not going to say wet because that feels a little bit first base, but I mean it is. It just it's it's a bit soggy. Yeah, sadly as a turkey just in time for Christmas. Which is a real shame because I was I was I was charmed and won over by the relentless silliness of the first movie. Mm. Um, which, as you say, throws everything at the screen. And then when you think there's nothing left to throw at the screen, James Wan throws some more stuff at the screen, <laughs> including stuff I genuinely had not seen before. And there's some yeah, great bonkers. visuals in this one as well, some lovely, lovely landscapes um, that that uh, Arthur and Orm, because heaven forfend, Amber Heard is allowed to do anything interesting in this movie. Uh, it, but the focus is very much on the, the brothers here. Um, they go to all kinds of different places. All of them ZG, but still some of them are very, very nice. And the film's called Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. And I would like to see James Wan and the Lost cut because there is no question in my mind <laughs> that this is not the film he set out to make. 100%, yeah. It's an absolute patchwork mess. And it, 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 it yeah. reeks of studio interference and reshoots Absolutely. and test screenings. And God knows, it's a Frankenstein's monster. Uh, and I just, yeah, I, I would be fascinated to know what the vision for this was, but I guarantee it's not what's on the screen. Absolutely. Characters come and go, they disappear, uh, subplots are introduced and then dropped. Um, you know, we are told that by Nicole Kidman, who's also in this movie, very, very briefly, yeah. uh, Dolph Lundgren gets more screen time than Nicole Kidman. <laughs> um, and I'm not, I'm not knocking Dolph Lundgren. He's great and he should be given more screen time and everything. But you have Nicole Kidman, and maybe she was holding her nose a little bit throughout, throughout the whole process. Um, but... I don't know. You don't give her anything to do, no. and and the treatment of Amber Heard is 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 distasteful at yeah. best. Um, but Nicole Kidman says when she introduces Topo, she says, and he plays many musical instruments. And yet, <laughs> to my knowledge, uh, to the best of my recollection, and I saw this movie three hours ago. I don't see. I don't remember seeing him play anything other than yeah, he doesn't even play the drums again. He doesn't even like you know get on the drums and and do a big sesh towards he, the end of the film. He probably plays a recorder in the director's cut. He probably does. He probably does. There's one thing that, that did kind of stick with me on this, that this is the final DCEU movie, the final one. And you would think, I'm not surprised in some way that it doesn't tap into the broader mythology. The original Aquaman didn't either. Like, it was very much standalone. It doesn't do that at all. So, But it does feel like it's not a celebration of the DCEU. Instead, there are two references to the MCU in this film. And that, to me, was absolutely wild. Like, I'm just, on in your final DCU film, there are two references to the MCU. I only caught one. I caught, uh, I caught um, Jason Momoa at one point calls Patrick Wilson Loki. He does, yes. What was the other one? The other one I cannot really talk about because it happens too close to the end of the film. Right, okay, okay. That's but interesting. I think people will know. Well, I say I think people will know it when they see it, but you didn't. So I wonder I whether it's intentional. It's one of these things where I saw it and I was like, is this intentional? I can't imagine it's not intentional, but maybe it isn't intentional. But if it is intentional, it's deranged. So make of that what you will. 
Right, we need to have a chat about this. We, all, we, we were hoping to do a spoiler special for this movie, but uh, James Wan was not available for a spoiler special chat. Um, perhaps because, I don't know, I, I, this may be a movie that he will want to forget as quickly as possible and move on. Because you know, we talk about the reshoots. It was, it was been fairly well documented that this movie had numerous reshoots and sometimes quite substantial reshoots as well. And um, it wasn't testing well with focus groups and mm. as a result got overhauled. And you can absolutely see that. But you can also see, and the real frustration here, you know, Jimbo, you're absolutely right about the fact that it, it, this was not intended to be the last DCEU movie, but it could have had a little bit more of a kind of a victory lap feel to it, perhaps. You know, uh, he cameos in The Flash, Aquaman cameos in The Flash, but there's no cameos from anyone else. There's no mention of anyone else. You know, he, whenever the, the, the big bad rears his ugly head, when he says to Nicole Kidman or Dolph Lundgren, he says to someone, uh, you know, there's only one person who could possibly help me beat this person. And you're thinking, Superman, it's Superman. It's got to be Superman, right? It's Superman. And it's like, there's my brother. It's Orm. Patrick it's like, Wilson. Of course it is. Are you sure about that? Are you sure? Well, well, they did shoot cameos for not one, but two different Batman for this film. It's just it did didn't they? appear in the final cut. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, okay. Affleck and Keaton both shot stuff for this film. Because remember, there was what? a one point where this was coming out before The Flash. And That's so they were right. going to be introduced in that. But then when The Flash that came out first, right. they cut it from this completely. So none of that That's appears. That's wild. Mm. But like, there's very little of the humor that made the first movie so distinctive. There's yeah. very little of the flair that made the movie, the, the first movie, so distinctive. There are a couple of nods. Like watching this, it's so clearly trying to be the DC version of Lord of the Rings, and it's so clearly trying to be as well a DC version of Raiders of the Lost Ark, because it has bits where they go to different tombs and they go to different places and they have to crack codes and and riddles and they're there's a bit of archaeology. You call this archaeology. There's a little bit of that. But it's so fragmented that it doesn't really get a chance to build momentum. I was so I was so disappointed because there were things I enjoyed. Um I will never not enjoy Randall Park, who's very, very good. He's in this, good. In this yeah, movie. I enjoyed him as well. I will never not enjoy the the Patrick Wilson and, and Jason Momoa. But the sheer Batman shit, um, go for broke <laughs> attitude that set the first one apart for me, for me uh, just isn't there. And I think this is, I don't know, I haven't really seen much about the tracking, but I would not be surprised if this does a, 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 a the Marvels and has a precipitous drop from a billion yeah. dollar grocer to a bit of a damp squid. I suspect well, it felt like there was very little excitement for this going into it. And unfortunately, it has lived up to that low expectation. It's a shame because James Wan is a great filmmaker, you know, and Jason Momoa is really great in this role. Like, he's really charismatic. He's great. I really enjoy the dynamic he has with Patrick Wilson. It feels, you know, no, not deliberately trying to throw shade at David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick, who's returning as screenwriter here. Uh, but um, I feel that, you know, may and maybe it isn't entirely his fault, you know, like, as we say, it's a patchwork quilt of a movie, but yeah. the writing at times is really, really quite clunky. Like some of the dialogue is clunky. Yes. Yeah. But again, that dialogue might come from reshoots that had nothing to do with the credited writer. So David Saslav might have had a pass at the script at some point. You, know, you never know. You yeah, never he wrote off some of the gags for tax purposes. Yeah, Aquaman and the tax write-off uh, <laughs> is what uh, this movie could have been. So uh, I'm glad we got to see it, at least. Uh, one last thing about Aquaman the Lost Kingdom. There is a moment, if you're talking about pop culture references, there's a moment where uh, Jason Momoa says to Patrick Wilson, all right, cast away, get Wilson. Yeah. And he's, he's saying Wilson to someone called Wilson, yes. which made me laugh. 
We've reached the Wilson singularity. We anyway, have. Two stars. <laughs> two stars. <laughs> Says James Dyer of this parish for Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Hells Bells. Hi. What do you want to review? I could review Silent Night. It's a John Woo movie. It's a Christmas movie. I'm so excited. It's a revenge thriller starring Joel Kinnaman. I'm less excited. Well, you shouldn't be, because Joel Kinnaman, right, this is my big thesis. Joel Kinnaman is a great actor, and I know this because I've seen him on TV. You (laughs) wouldn't know this if you've only seen him in movies, where even when he's a good actor, he's in a bad movie. Most of the time. In fairness, I uh, I have extreme Robocop remake bias. I know, I know. We all do. Joel Kinnaman. I've had to work through it. Yes. Yeah, I know. I, I don't think that was his fault. I think he was at the scene of the crime. Let's put it that That's way. That's true. His dabs were somewhat on it. But uh I've you know, I've had a I've had a tricky relationship with Joel Kinnaman for a while once I figured out which one was him and which one was Jai Courtney. Uh, but the Suicide Squad in particular went a long way to redeeming him. Uh, in my eyes, which he will be delighted by. Uh, and I believe he's very good in For All Mankind. So well done. He's him. so good in yes. For All Mankind. He's so good in that. He was really good in House of Cards. He's He was really good in, was it The Bridge he was the in? Killing. He was in one of the, the Scandi the, the Killing, of the course. Killing. I knew that. The Killing. Um, so he can act and he does a very good job here. The, the problem here is not his performance. So he plays Brian, who is uh, a, a guy. He is married, living with his uh, wife and son when uh, an unthinkable tragedy strikes and a stray bullet from a gangland sort of uh, chase basically kills his son. Uh, so we actually open the film in sort of the middle of a chase scene where he's basically trying to find the people responsible. Uh, that doesn't go well. And he is left himself injured um, and un- basically has lost the ability to speak, which, hence the gimmick of this film, which is that it is without traditional dialogue. There is some chat on the radio and TV, but nobody in this film talks to anybody else in this film. And you can feel the effort and you can feel them straining against the limitations that that poses in both, you know, character work and storytelling and everything else. So it's to John Woo's credit that I feel like I kind of knew what was going on, you know, and no big news break here. He's a very good filmmaker. Um, and the, the action scene, that opening chase is is amazing. Uh, there's a couple of moments later in the film that are very, very good. The problem here is that it, it really is hamstrung by this decision not to have any dialogue. And so despite the best efforts of Joel Kinman, which I think are very good here, despite the best efforts of John Woo, it 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 does have a void where its kind of soul should be. And you know, this character, Brian, that he's playing is, I think, meant to be an anti-hero. And I think we're not meant to be on his side, but it's honestly hard to say. I'm assuming that maybe because I don't like vigilantes as a concept and nothing in this really gives me a reason to get past that. You know, this is a very, I think, or can be read certainly as a very right-wing sort of film. This is the guy who's standing up and doing what the police can't do, damn it, um, to bring down these bad guys. And this is this is kind of like a Charles Bronson-y kind of energy for a lot of the film, you know. Um, there is also the aspect of the fact that all the gangsters he is tracking are well, pretty much mostly Latino, but but certainly all people of color. He is pretty much the one white guy in the film. So the 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 racial kind of message of this film is complicated, <laughs> let's say, by that. Um, again, I think it's it's undercut by the fact that, you know, this is made by John Woo. He's not a, a white filmmaker. So I think he is saying something a little bit more complicated and he is, you know, p- 
relying on the fact that many of the good characters in, in the film are also people of color because uh, and, and that you can't trust Brian because he is basically broken by grief. Mm. But it is a it's a weird energy, this film. There's good moments. People might want to see it if they're John Woo completists or Joel Kinnaman completists. <laughs> no judgment here for all mankind is fucking incredible. Um, but it's not up there with the best of either of those people. That's a shame. I haven't seen it yet. It's on Sky Cinema. Mm-hmm. What do we give it? I would personally give it two stars. I couldn't see a review on the Empire website. This is a huge shame. John Woo, one of my favourite filmmakers. Back, back, back. But sadly, more in the paycheck mode. And perhaps it was a big paycheck. So get paid, John. Get paid. That's what I say. Two more films to cover. One is Finest Kind, which is a film written and directed by Brian Helgeland, the uh, writer, of course, a uh, co-writer of LA Confidential. And uh, this is his most personal film, Jimbo. I've been reading up about this since I watched the movie. And a lot of this, not the druggy stuff, but the the uh, the other stuff on the boats. The fishy is, stuff. The fishy stuff. <laughs> not the fishy stuff. There's fishy stuff. <laughs> there's and then fishy there's stuff fishy and fishy stuff. stuff. Literal yeah. fishy stuff and metaphorical yeah. fishy stuff. Yes. The metaphorical fishy stuff is not from his real life, but the literal fishy stuff yeah. is from his real life because he was, um, he was a, 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 like an Aquaman, if you will. <laughs> Yes. Growing up in in uh, in Bedford, New Massachusetts, near Baston. Baston. Yeah, it's been quite a briny week for films actually this week. Uh, so yeah, finest kind is. is so on, we've it, had a and Brian is in. Um, <laughs> it's a briny <gasps> week. It's a briny week. It's a briny <laughs> week. Oh my god. Um, so yeah, finest kind is a word. Apparently, it's fisherman speak. It can mean a variety of things. It can mean great. It can mean shit. It can mean terrible. It can mean okay. Which in many ways is quite appropriate for this film. So, so oh, come so, on. Sorry. Uh, Brian's been trying to make this, from my understanding, he's been, he wrote this originally, a draft of this, about 25 years ago. And I think, believe it, at one point there was talk for Heath Ledger to actually star in this film. It's gone through many iterations since then. As it happens, Toby Wallace steps in as Charlie, and he's a sort of son of a wealthy family, rich kid, uh, just graduated from college. He's got into law school, but he decides he wants to go out on the boat with his half-brother, Tom, played by Ben Foster, uh, and he wants to be a man man's man and go on the high seas and catch some fish so i went into this blind and it begins as what you think will be kind of like a family drama you know charting the kind of complicated tendrils that go through this sort of blended family where you've got these two half brothers very different fathers so tom's uh, father is tommy lee jones who plays ray he's kind of again he's a sort this blood fisherman of fisher stock uh whereas charlie comes from much more sort of well-to-do father um and uh they go out on the on the boat and it, it doesn't go well the boat explodes and they end up in a lifeboat and you're like oh okay so it's a disaster movie but it's not because they get rescued and they go back and everything's fine and they end up in the pub so you're like okay it's not a disaster movie and then they get another commission where tommy lee jones comes up looking all craggy and says will you take my boat out and they're like yes we'll take your boat out and we will catch some fucking fish so go out to sea, but they decide they want to catch more fish. So they stray over the border into Canadian waters and they fish Canadian waters illegally. Mm. And what do you know? They get caught. They get caught. The the, the Canadians are not happy. Uh, the boat gets impounded. They're upset. They come back to shore. So you're like, oh, okay. So the boat's getting impounded. They've got to get the boat back. What's going to happen? How is the family going to deal with that? And then, and this is about the halfway point in the movie, and then the movie takes a turn, which is what Chris alluded to, where they hook up with Jenna Ortega, who's the world's least convincing drug baron, and they set up some a nefarious deal involving drugs, and the whole thing stops being a family drama and becomes, I guess, a kind of crime thriller, and it goes a little off the rails. Uh, it is full of kind of platitudes and 
ridiculous twists and turns. It's also quite boring, and it just doesn't really seem to know what it wants to be. Like, it doesn't have the dramatic chops to be a family drama. It doesn't really have the interest or the twists and turns that work uh, to be a proper thriller. Uh, and and all the way through, you're just slightly confused as to what it is you're actually watching. So it's very odd that that Brian Helgeland was talking about this as like his most personal film, and how you know he he worries that this will be his last film, and he wishes it was his first film. And we're all thinking, I'm really glad it wasn't your first film. Uh, please make another <laughs> LA Confidential, uh, or you know, a Night's Tale, whatever. Uh, Amen. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this it, I mean, it's 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 not good. Like the performances are fine. Like Toby Wallace is good. Ben Foster always reliable. Tommy Lee Jones playing Tommy Lee Jones, but. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's about what it's about two hours ten something like that, two hours fifteen. Uh, but it is it's a bit it's a bit it's a bit dull. It's a bit dull. So what you're saying is it has been weighed, it has been it's measured, been found wanting. <laughs> okay. Yes, that is a hundred percent what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, it's a little harsh, maybe, but is it? It didn't grab me. It didn't grab me. Uh, I'll be honest, which is a shame because I really like Brian Helgeland. It feels like. The personal nature of this maybe blinded him to how effective it was. Do you know what yeah. I mean? I think maybe he was a little close to the subject matter on this one, because uh, as you say, like he's very, very good. He's a great writer. Uh, so this was this was a disappointing one, you know. And maybe I mean there is a reason. Bear in mind this film materialized on Paramount Plus without so much as a herald. There was no Paul Bettany shouting it from the lists before it arrived. Uh, it just like splatted there, like like hauled over the edge of a fishing boat. Uh, so we're watching it a little bit late. But yeah, I'm beginning to understand why. Yeah, it dropped last week on Paramount Plus, and uh, I only knew about that because I, I knew it was coming out in the states in Paramount Plus, but it, we hadn't been told anything about this. And uh, I went to check it, and there, there, there it was—finest kind, like a pretty big name cast, big name writer, director, mm. at least. You know, it, it, it's it's so bizarre this marketing strategy. It's not even a marketing strategy. I don't know what it is. You just it's, dump it's, in these it's movies. The, it's the knock knock ginger releasing method, isn't it? It is. <laughs> just ring the it's, doorbell it's and run just, away. <laughs> it's just. It's so frustrating, and I can't even. It's frustrating for us. I can't even imagine what it's like for Brian Helgeland, who's been trying to make this movie for thirty years, and it gets dumped. <laughs> the only only publicity it got really was um, that photo call they did last week. A, they had a kind of a premiere for it. And uh, and Janet Ortega and Tommy Lee Jones were there. Toby Wallace, who's Australian and a brilliant, brilliant actor, wasn't there. And Ben Foster wasn't there. But Janet Ortega and Tommy Lee Jones were there. And they had a very, they had a conversation on the red carpet where Tommy Lee Jones asked Janet Ortega if they had had any scenes together. Um, <laughs> and that got that got some traction. <laughs> and you can you can kind of understand it. Like they probably shot this movie two two and a half years ago. He's in the seventies. Give the guy a break. But you know. That, that's the only way that this got any traction, which is real, real shame. But it would be a bigger shame if we were one of the films of the year and it were completely overlooked and it was like this this hidden gem. But it, mm. It's not that. No. Um, but I, went, I, would, I would go three. Two. Jimbo, who hates all things aquatic this week, would probably go <laughs> yeah, two. Yeah, that's it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a two. All right. Um, well, what happens to water when it freezes? It turns into snow. <laughs> Thank you, Helen. Thank you, it does. <laughs> I had it turns... no idea where you were going with that. <laughs> it turns into snow. Uh, it turns into the. It turns into Society of the Snow, which is uh, a film that's out in cinemas this week and will be out on Netflix in a couple of weeks' time. And uh, this is probably the film of the week. I don't know why we're leaving it to the end. I know why we're leaving it to the end because <laughs> only I have seen it. But this is the latest film from J.A. Bayona. And the brilliant Spanish director, and it is a telling of one of the 
most legendary air crash tales of all time. Um, it happened in the early 70s when a uh, amateur Uruguayan rugby team uh, were on a chartered flight from Uruguay to Chile and their plane crashed in the Andes uh, between Chile and Argentina, if I'm right in thinking. And many of them were killed on impact. But there were some survivors who thought they were going to be rescued very, very quickly. And they were not rescued very, very quickly. In fact, they were not rescued at all. Uh, and in fact, they had to fend for themselves with very little food, no water, uh, and no protection from the harsh elements. And in the course of their survival story, they turned to cannibalism. They turned to eating the, the flesh of their dead friends and family in order to stay alive. And then a couple of them made a break for freedom to try and get help. Help was found, which is how they survived and how we know about this. And the reason I'm telling you this is because you may be thinking, that sounds a bit familiar, Chris. <laughs> I've seen that before, haven't I? And you have. You've seen it as Frank Marshall's uh, Alive, which came out in 1992 and, of course, was uh, a Hollywoodized version of this story starring a very, very young Ethan Hawke. Um, this is a very, very different version of that, while at the same time feeling familiar. But I, I think this is tremendous. It's, for me, it is one of the films of the year. It is a deeply moving, deeply emotional, deeply spiritual, if you're open to that kind of thing. Take on adversity, on sacrifice um, as well, and how, how far you're willing to go to help others stay alive at the cost of your own life uh, and what that means to you this is a group this is a a group of young men most of whom are deeply religious and uh, for some of them eating the flesh of their friends is completely and utterly sacrilegious and so they take a take a long time to be convinced of the merits of that um it is an extraordinary film i must confess i was on set uh, of this movie i wrote the empire feature for this movie I've been tracking it along the way. Uh, I was at this scoring session for this film uh, at Abbey Road a couple of months ago um, where I saw Michael Cicchino uh, and an orchestra uh, put down one of the scores of the year for me. It's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, so moving. But taking all that to one side, uh, it's just an absolutely gorgeous, evocative, emotional, haunting journey uh, of survival, which is absolutely tremendous and I think would be a really really interesting double bill one day with Alive but one of the big differences is that the lead character in this is a man called Numa played by a Uruguayan newcomer called Enzo Fogrincic and that character Numa is not even in Alive there is probably a Numa in the background of Alive but you certainly don't see him he's not named at any point um, so the decision to focus on Numa in this I think is really really interesting it's a great great film Check it out on the big screen if you can, or wait a couple of weeks for it on Netflix. But uh, we gave it four, I'd go five. All right. I need to eat, quite frankly. <laughs> I haven't eaten today, apart from half a pack of Pringles and uh, some caramel nibbles when I was watching Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. So I think that's time to wrap this up. Time to wrap up your little Christmas gift that is this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by two absolute Big name A-listers to see out the year in the shape of Michael Fassbender, star of Next Goal Wins, and Adam Driver, star of Michael Mann's Ferrari. Yes, you make a film about a Ferrari, you need a driver. Anyway, it's time to say goodbye to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. 
Goodbye, James Dyer. Goodbye, Chris Hewitt. Goodbye, Helen O'Hara. Diddly. What have you got me for Christmas? Don't answer that. I gave it to you already. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's Jeez. right, you did. Jimbo, what have you got me? I also gave you a he present already. He gave it already. to you already as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Where are our presents, Hang on a Chris? Did this I not is get you anything? Question. This is so awkward. Anyway, <laughs> hey, would you like some tickets to the 600th episode at King's Place? No, it's sold out. <laughs> I can get you in. I know a guy. <laughs> I can even get your primo seats on the stage facing the audience. <laughs> would you be interested? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye. Bye.